It's time for another episode of the Franchise Business Radio Show, broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel Studios in Atlanta, sponsored by Franchise Intellect, knowledge of the franchise community for franchise selection. More info at FranchiseIntellect.com. Also made possible in part by Franchise.City, a better way to buy a franchise. More info at Franchise.City. And FranServe, the world's largest franchise consulting and expansion organization. More info at FranServe.com. Now, here's your host, certified franchise consultant, Pamela Curry. Hello, this is Pamela Curry, the host of Franchise Business Radio, coming to you from the Pro Business Channel Studios in Atlanta. The Franchise Business Radio Show's mission is to have a platform to bring together franchise professionals together to connect, educate, and collaborate to serve the franchise community and those considering franchise ownership. Uh, Before we get started with our guest today, I do want to say Thank you to our sponsors, uh, Franchise Intellect, uh, knowledgeable, knowledgeable Advisors for Franchise Selection, and our partner, Franchise.City, a better way to buy a franchise, also made possible by FranServe, the world's largest franchise consulting and expansion organization. Let's go ahead and uh, introduce our guest. I'm very excited about today's show because it's going to be a very educational show regarding franchise law and business ownership benefits, tax advantages. So stay tuned for some legal insight as well as some tax benefits as a franchise business owner. And this is not uh, John Q's first time to the studio. Welcome back, John. Oh, thank you very much, Pam. Great to be here. I'm great here. And uh, for our listeners, your name and company name. Um, I'm John Quadraki. I'm a CPA in the Atlanta area. I work with a lot of franchisors, franchisees. My arm that deals with franchises called Corporate Financial Options, and we provide outsourced bookkeeping, accounting, and tax services and CFO management for franchisees and franchisors. Excellent. Well, excited to have you back on the show, and we're going to dive into some of the tax advantages. Uh, Michael, I also want to welcome you back to the studio. Thank you so much for having me back here again. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And I, I just want to share a little bit uh, with our listeners about your background, because you've got a lot of deep expertise when it comes to franchise law. You've been practicing at the Atlanta-based firm of Taylor English Duma, which is a 75-lawyer general practice firm, right? Business practice firm? It's 175. Woo! Okay. Yep. Correction. Thank you so much. Uh, Michael has been, you've been in practice for 39 years, and your focus is primarily on franchise and distribution law? That's right. Um, I like to say that my practice is industry-specific or focused. Um, I do some general business and corporate practice too, but most of my clients are in the franchise world. Makes sense because you do represent both franchisors and franchisees when it comes to buying or selling franchise units. Um, you handle both franchise disputes as well as franchise transactions, meaning the buying and selling of units or territories. Correct. Uh, and you practice locally, I know that, but you also have a presence nationally as well as internationally and are an active member of the IR Global International Network for Attorneys and Accountants, as well as a chair of its ethics committee. Yes. Um, so maybe seven or eight years ago, I realized that I was doing a lot of inbound and some outbound work. So I had clients coming from Europe and other places and one clients wanting to go overseas and IR Global just gives me access to professionals in about 90 countries around the world. Uh, I've been hmm. really impressed with the caliber of the people that are in the network. 
Uh, okay, IR Global, that means something to you. Tell, tell our listeners, who is IR Global? IR Global was started by um, an Englishman, um, <laughs> and they are based in the middle, middle England, I guess you'd call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this gentleman had the idea of creating a referral network, but it's really become more than that. It's really a way for professionals to get together and help each other's clients. And they do a great job of vetting the people that are in the network. Mm-hmm. So I've had nothing but great experiences with the people there. I call, you know, gee, I need uh, an employment contract for a client that's uh, doing something in India, and I, I'm able to get it. I need to register a trademark in mm-hmm. Thailand, and I'm able to get that help. So it's been phenomenal. Oh, okay, that makes perfect sense. Um, well, I'm going to bring a domestic for now. Okay. Okay. Sounds great. Yeah, because for the purpose of this show, I really want to make this an educational show for those that are considering franchise business ownership. And um, I want them to receive some legal insight from you. So I'm going to start at a high level and then start to drill down with you, if that's okay. That's great. Okay. Um, Let's start off with another acronym, (laughs) FDD. Give us an overview of what an FDD is. Uh, First of all, the acronym stands for Franchise Disclosure Document. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, the Federal Trade Commission regulates franchises in the sense that it requires this document, the FDD, to be given out uh, 14 days before any prospect signs a franchise agreement. Mm-hmm. So you have to have it in your hot little hands or on your <laughs> on your desktop or laptop. Um, and it's got a ton of information that ref- uh, franchisors are required to put in there. So. It's everything from background about the company and its officers and directors, how it got started, um, financial information, both about the company that's selling you the franchise and estimated costs that you will incur as you start up your franchise, ongoing fees, um, information about the territory you may receive, their trademarks. It just goes on and on. Um, So it's just a very useful document. And unlike a lot of other things in government world, mm-hmm. it's really not uh, – the, the Federal Trade Commission doesn't actually read it. <sighs> you, you don't file it with them. They just say you must give out this information to somebody before they buy, mm-hmm. and then they have the opportunity to understand more about the company that they're thinking about getting involved with. So it's, it's required, obviously, from by the Federal Trade Commission. Correct. Um, but there's a lot of franchise disclosure documents out there, so they wouldn't have time to read, read every single one. No, but um, just as an example, if you woke up one day and said, I'm interested in uh, buying a franchise, yeah. uh, then you might identify an industry that you're interested in or a subcategory. So the most obvious one might be quick service restaurants, mm-hmm. fast food. And you can go out into the, into the world, so to speak, and ask franchisors to provide you with this document. Some will do it willingly. Some want to see your financial statements first and get more information about you to see whether you might be a good prospect for them. But then you can sit down and compare them. And um, you can see how, sometimes you can see how the franchisees have done in some aspects of the financial piece of their business. Um, You can see the number of units that the company's had over the last three years, if the system has grown or shrunk. Uh, the franchisor has to attach audited financial statements mm-hmm. uh, for their company. So you get to see what is their background financially. Um, and 
if you really understand them, and that's really probably more John's thing, <laughs> um, you can learn a fair amount about a company by looking at all that. And then lastly, they have to attach con- copies of all of the contracts that you will be expected or might be expected to sign um, as a franchisee. So the franchise agreement, but also what I call ancillary agreements like software licenses if you're using software. Mm. Um, oftentimes there are things that relate to your lease such as a conditional assignment of your lease. Um, anything that you're going to be involved in contractually, they have to give it to you so you can see it up front. That's great. And I, it's a, you know, obviously it's a uniform document um, covering, you know, 23 specific items that a franchisor is required to disclose upon. Uh, but for the average person, it can be a very overwhelming document, although very knowledgeable document. How is it, if I were getting an FDD for my first time, what would you advise? How is it laid out? How do I get started with that? Well, um, the first thing, and this is kind of surprising to me, even after all these years in the industry, that I say to folks is, you've been given this document, you actually need to read it. (laughs) Um, And it sounds basic, but I frequently get clients that say to me, no, I'm paying you to read it. And I say, I'm not the one that's buying the business. You are. Right. So you really need to read it. And yes, it's a big document and perhaps it's not fascinating to a lot of folks. (laughs) Get yourself a big pot of coffee or whatever stimulant you require and sit down and go through it. Um, In terms of the way it's organized, the front of the document has the 23 items of information that we kind of talked on, touched on some of them. Mm-hmm. And then uh, at the back as exhibits, they have the contracts, uh, sample forms of contracts. They also have the audited financial statements. There's a list of existing franchisees yeah. and their contact information, which is really useful. They also have to list franchisees who've left the system in the last year. So, if you can get them to call you back, mm-hmm. you can talk to the people who are no longer franchisees and recently left, which also I think can be useful. Uh, so there's a lot of great information, and um, it's pretty well organized. If you go to the front of it, there is a table of contents. You can actually <laughs> look at it and see uh, what's in there and where it is. So it's really not that daunting if you spend a little bit of time with it. Yeah, and it helps just to know how it is organized, so you can you know feel like okay, I know where I'm going and um, and how to find things. And your right table of contents right there, you know, <laughs> reference yeah. that. <laughs> uh, oh, do you can, want to can talk I ask about a question real quick? Yeah, sure, John. Now, stuff that's omitted in the document is one thing, but you have a franchise broker or a franchise representative that makes disclosures that aren't in the document. How does how does that tie in? So. You know, you're talking to a financial broker and you're a prospective franchisee and he says, yeah, it says that, you know, 10% are making this much money, but really you'll make a lot more money than that. That's a really good question. Mm-hmm. And that is prohibited. No, <laughs> no. Um, it, it, is, it is probably one of the most common ways in which franchisors get sued by unhappy franchisees. And I'm, I'm often shocked that the salesperson or broker uh, more often than not, it's a salesperson. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll throw that data out there, and some of them are actually brazen enough to put it in a spreadsheet and send it in, a, in an email. Wow. So there's written documentation showing that they have done that. But all of the financial information, well, I'm sorry, the only financial information that they're supposed to provide to you is in item 19, mm-hmm. and item 19 is optional. So franchisors don't have to give you financial data, but if they do, uh, it has to be in item 19. Obviously, it has to be in writing, 
And beyond that, it has to be truthful, duh. <laughs> and there's a, the rules say that not only does it have to be truthful, it can't be literally true but still misleading. And the example I give to folks is um, if I give you data about our store in Manhattan – and I forget to tell you about the other 99 stores we have that aren't doing as well. That would be misleading, even though the data about the store in Manhattan is technically true. Uh, so uh, that is one of the things that I really look at when I'm helping a client review an FDD is how is the item 19 presented? And are they torquing it, bending it in a way that's perhaps not totally fair? Not totally transparent. Yes. Mm-hmm. I follow you. Uh, yeah, and item 19, one of the most talked about items in the FTD, financial performance representation, uh, and is and is optional. Um, we'll take any data we can get. But should it scare a prospective franchisee off if there is no data in the item 19? Not necessarily. I mean, mm-hmm. I think more data, more is better. Right. Understood. Um, with newer systems, oftentimes they don't have data or they're reluctant to give data because they're not really up and running yet. Mm-hmm. Um, some systems are reluctant to give data because they have a lot of failed units, which isn't necessarily a terrible thing. So, for example, uh, a franchise that's service-slash-sales oriented mm-hmm. is going to be more difficult sometimes to get up and running than something that's retail. And um, you'll have bigger variations. So think of a bell curve, but a Uh really big one Mm -hmm. between the highly successful franchisees and the not at all successful franchisees. Understand. So oftentimes it's very dependent on the person's willingness to get out into the world and sell. Yeah. Some people think they're willing to do it, but when they actually start doing it, they find out they don't like to. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I, we were just talking earlier. I, I like to joke and say, you know, this this isn't the field of dreams. You don't just hang your shingle and, and then your customers come. And, you know, <laughs> it doesn't yeah, work that true. way. You've got to, And there is, um, in, in every franchise system, there's going to be a performance gap uh, within the system. You know, you're going to have your high achievers, your low achievers, your average achievers within the system. Um so that just is going to exist. I think that some of the in some of the larger systems that give financial performance representations in item nineteen, um, when you look at the data and and the rules encourage you to give, uh, if you're a franchise or data divided up into segments. So it might be quartiles, as an example. Mm-hmm. You know, the top quartile looks great. The bottom quartile not so great. The reality is, at least half the people. Well, half the people, by definition, are going to be in the middle. And that's what you might reasonably expect if you're an average franchisee. I know we all think we're above average, <laughs> but but on average, all of us are average. Right. right. Yeah, very good point. I, I think George Carlin said, think of somebody you think is of average intelligence and realize that half the world is dumber than he is. <laughs> well put. <laughs> So we, we jump to item 19, which is, is obviously uh, um, one of the most talked about items in the FDD as we discussed. But I do want to recognize the, the, the franchise disclosure document is important in its entirety. Like you already mentioned, it's important to read the entire thing, especially if you're going to be making this type of an investment and becoming a franchisee. But I do want to discuss a couple of specific items in the FDD and just get your definition and insight 
for our listeners. Okay. Um, if we could go ahead and talk about, let's talk about fees, items five, six, and seven. So obviously you're going to be spending some money to own a franchise and to operate the franchise. Really? They're not free. Um, call me if you find one. That's free. <laughs> um, but you get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. So item five lays out the fees that you typically have to um, pay on the front end. Mm-hmm. So tip, most often there's an initial franchise fee or franchise fee, um, which can be substantial. Uh, in addition, in item five, they're going to spell out any other amounts that they're going to be paying to the franchisor on an initial basis. So sometimes there's an equipment purchase, for example. Okay. And that equipment is being purchased from the franchisor. I have clients who are franchisors that say you must use this equipment. It's part of our system. And so that's all disclosed in item five. Mm-hmm. Item six has other fees. Other meaning every other fee, whatever it is. <laughs> and it sometimes goes on for quite a while. Some of the fees you can actually expect to pay. So royalties would be a common one. Mm-hmm. Or an advertising or marketing fund fee. So when you see the McDonald's ads on TV, that's paid for out of the advertising fund. It's not McDonald's corporate that's paying for it. Right. Um, but there'll be other fees that are listed in there. There may be software fees uh, in the modern world. Uh, there may be some internet fee of some sort, technology fees, and there'll be fees that are listed that are not going to be charged to you unless you misbehave in some way. So there might be a late fee if you don't pay your royalty on time. Mm -hmm. It all has to be disclosed in there. They have to point out that if you don't purchase the required insurance to cover your business, the franchisor can jump in and buy the insurance for you and charge you a fee for that. Mm -hmm. That's all disclosed there. And then item seven is supposed to be a representation of all of the costs that you will incur as a new franchisee if it's a startup franchise and you're mm-hmm. not buying an existing unit, um, up to and including the first 90 days of operation. So yep. you have a period pre-operation where you're getting ready to launch. Then you'll have a start date. Uh, so if it's retail, that's easy to determine. We opened our doors and then 90 days thereafter. So it's supposed to give you all of that data Um, One thing I always point out to people about item seven is it doesn't mean at the end of 90 days you're going to be making money. So you may still need operating capital to get you beyond that period. And and many new businesses, the the leading cause of business failure, as I understand it, is people don't have enough operating capital. Sure. So you need to plan for that. Absolutely. No, that's that's great advice um, right there. Uh, and the item seven usually does include, uh, I think, like three months of working capital, correct? It does. Mm-hmm. I, and I just say to folks, recognize that may not get you there. Right. And in fact, in many, most businesses, I would think that three months, if you're profitable after three months, you're very fortunate. Yeah. Um, and talking about fees, uh, obviously, the immediately what people focus on when they're first looking at a franchise opportunity, they want to know, okay, what's that one-time franchise fee I have to pay to become part of the franchise system, use the brand, receive the proven methods of operation. But then there's that ongoing royalty. What do you most commonly see as far as the structure of a royalty? So structure typically will fall into two or three categories. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a percentage royalty, which is a percentage of your total revenue. Um, that's the most common. Then the other extreme would be some kind of fixed or minimum monthly fee. So it might be $1,000 a month, and that's all you pay. And then 
there's a blend, which might be that monthly royalty, that's a fixed amount, is a, is a floor. It's a minimum. Mm-hmm. And so the royalty might be, as an example, 6% of gross revenue or $1,000, whichever is greater. And the idea is the franchisor wants to know that they've got a certain amount of revenue. And also, it's it's a commitment on your part that you're going to get out there and do certain things to generate revenue. And um, I, I find that's less true with things like restaurants. It's more true with service industry franchises, sales-oriented franchises, because some people don't get out and do what they're supposed to do. And the franchisors get frustrated because – They've granted you oftentimes a territory. So you're kind of squatting on their 160 <laughs> acres and they want to know you're going to grow something. Otherwise, it's keeping somebody else from being in that territory and you're not really working it as well as you should. Well said. Uh, territories, another great, that's uh, uh, item 12, right? Territory yes. definition. Um, what do you most commonly see there? Give us some examples. It varies greatly. So, um, with retail or restaurant focus, we typically see um, a radius of some sort around. So picture your, your restaurant or retail spot as a spot on a map. Mm-hmm. And it might be a two-mile radius or a three-mile radius or a smaller radius in a denser metropolitan area. So Manhattan, it might be three blocks. <laughs> um, because, and I've, I've literally seen Starbucks on three corners, oh, you know, yeah. opposite each other. So that Subway. would be, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, that would be very common. Um, sometimes they will give you a zip code or zip codes or what I call meets and bounds, which is really a lawyer's way of saying, you know, we start on this spot and we go north for two miles and then we make a right turn at this road and then we go across three miles and so on until they outline this on a map. Um, so, so those are probably um, among the most common ways of doing things. Um, and sometimes franchisors will allow you to purchase additional territories, again, more typically for service industry franchises. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're saying, I'm going to service the town of Sandy Springs. Um, but if you pay them an additional fee, they might give you the adjoining town which might be Roswell. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're, you're buying a territory in which you can work. Um, and then the territory descriptions can, can vary. So sometimes they say a franchisee with this territory may only sell to customers located within the territory. Sometimes they say the territory means we will not put another franchisee physically within this territory, but you can sell to anyone you wish. Right. You can sell and service maybe or service anyone you wish or but they won't put anyone in your backyard as far as another franchisee goes. That's correct. Um, mm-hmm. Increasingly, we're seeing controversy uh, with all of the food delivery services because most restaurant franchises, the franchise are simply saying we're not going to put another franchisee in this area or within your territory, but that doesn't stop Uber Eats or somebody else, DoorDash, from necessarily picking up at a location and delivering it five miles away. Mm, mm-hmm. So that's becoming more of a policing problem for franchisors and franchisees. Yeah, those fine lines, really understanding the intimacies of the business and how is that going to impact your market opportunity is right, the franchisee. Uh, I also want to talk about uh, terms of a franchise agreement. Uh, every a fran- it's not 
It's not forever. Uh, Every franchise agreement has a term. Could you talk to us a little bit about that, the item 17? Sure. So um, first of all, term means how long is the contract for? Mm -hmm. And typically we see everything from five years to 20 years being typical. Um, I've seen recently 35-year terms, which I question. I would advise someone to really – think about whether they want to sign up for 35 years. I've been married for 39 years. And <laughs> that's, a, that's a miracle because I married so you're out. patient. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, um, you're you free now. Sorry. You can't transfer. <laughs> that's right. Was that automatically renewable after 35 years? As, as long as I want to stay alive. Uh, so, um, but the franchise agreement term most typically is somewhat tied to the industry. So we, we see terms that tend to relate to the type of business that it is. Um, you know, a stereotypical term might be 10 years, you know, for a retail restaurant, um, for many uh, lower cost service franchises. And the idea is you get to operate it for this long. Uh, as you approach the end of the term, usually within a window of three to nine months, if you want to renew the term and you have a renewal right in the franchise agreement, mm-hmm. you notify the franchisor in writing and you say, I want to re-up. Uh, they will look at whether you've been a good franchisee and complied with the franchise agreement. Sometimes you have to meet certain sales minimums or other requirements. Uh, and then typically you have a right to renew. But I always say the right to renew is a little bit, um, it's not as clear as we'd like it to be. Mm-hmm. Because most franchise agreements say that the renewal term franchise agreement, so the new franchise agreement you're going to sign for the second term, it can have materially different provisions in it mm. uh, than mm. from your first one. So it it might, for example, say the royalty is going to increase. Um, it might have different legal terms. Sometimes they'll renegotiate the territory with you. So it's it's um, it's not always clear that your renewal right is exactly what you want it to be. Understand? Yeah. So your initial franchise agreement term. Uh, doesn't mean those terms are going to be in your renewed franchise agreement term. You're not grandfathered in unnecessarily. Not necessarily. It, it varies by system, but most will try to reserve the right to change it. And what I always say to clients is, if you can, and it depends on the size of the system and how willing they are to negotiate with you, ask them on the front end to agree that the financial terms of the franchise agreement will not be change significantly Ah. um, upon renewal and also ask them to agree that your territory won't be reduced. And sometimes they'll say yes. Sometimes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That little word there. They never say yes if you don't ask, though. (laughs) That's right. right. (laughs) That's absolutely right. Uh, One more item I I do want to dive into with the franchise disclosure document is the item 20. Uh, Talk to our listeners about that table in item 20. So item 20 actually has multiple tables within it. Um, they're tables for what I call company-owned stores. Mm-hmm. That's the, the simplest way to describe it. There's tables for franchisee-owned stores. There's a blended table, and there's a table of projected openings. Uh, so what does the franchisor anticipate? How many units do they think they're going to be opening in the next year or during the coming year? Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of a wish list, and you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. um, I'd like to be taller, but it's too late for me. There's other <laughs> things I wish for. Uh, well, it's funny you see a lot of those, right? 
four stores open, three under uh, three under construction, and one thousand nine hundred and seventy two under development. Yep. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. It means almost nothing. <laughs> well, and and in the states that regulate the sales of franchises where they closely read these franchise disclosure documents before the sellers are allowed to use them. That's one thing I've never really seen that uh, an examiner comment on. They don't typically say, really, you think you're going to open 11 stores in California next year? So it is, (laughs) it is sort of a wish list, but the, the great thing about item 20, I think is it lets you look at the history over the last few years of the Mm -hmm. system and, and look at um, how many units have been terminated so how many people just didn't renew um, and how many units, I call it, went dark. So basically, you know, how many went out of business? And depending on the industry, it's, it can be telling. I've, yeah. I have read FDDs and said to clients, you really need to think twice about this because their failure rate over the last three years is 35%. Mm. Well, would you start a business – knowing that the previous people that had started the same exact type of business had a 35% failure rate over the last three years. Excellent point. Pretty risky. Yeah, no, and that's why that item 20 is so important to understand. Uh, Do you have any any information on the failure rate of franchises versus non-franchise businesses? Because in dealing in the general business spectrum, a 35% failure rate is relatively low. It is, and and I've heard data often circulated by the franchise industry that their success rate is much higher. Um, I've heard you know ninety percent success rate, and I always say there's some truth to that. Yeah. Um, I, I think there is a better probability of your remaining in business as a franchisee than if you start a business from scratch. The thing that I always point out to people though is first you need to des- decide what is success, how has it been defined. And, um, you know, and I'm very pro-franchising, but I, I see a lot of people that buy franchises that remain in business strictly because they've signed a lease mm-hmm. and they're not making much money or they're even losing money and they're not shown as failures. But if you'd ask them if they'd succeeded or failed, they would probably tell you that they are failure. They're just stuck because they don't want the landlord to sue them if they default on their lease. So, you know, it's, it's interesting data, but as with all, what is it, lies, darn lies, and statistics. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, they got, uh, uh, yeah, I know numbers can be manipulated in a lot of different ways, right? Uh, that's it's still true. good data to see them. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It, 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 it really can help you figure out how are people doing. And frankly, if you look at a system that has, you know, a 98, 99 or more percent success rate, you know, you've probably get a really good chance of being successful in absolutely this absolutely and we all know franchising is classified as a risk mitigation strategy for a lot of the reasons that have been mentioned uh but i do want to hit on a couple more topics before we go to our next guest john and that's um there's very often i see something called a personal guarantee so a personal guarantee is a separate document uh it's a separate contract that an individual signs to guarantee the obligation of either another individual or more typically a corporate entity, so a corporation or a limited liability company, Mm -hmm. LLC. Most franchisees set up a corporate entity in order to own and operate their business because Mm -hmm. they want to be protected from liability to third parties. 
<clears throat> but the personal guarantee is because the franchisor says, you know, we, we set up Pamela Curry LLC <laughs> to own and operate this business, mm-hmm. but we want Pamela herself to be obligated for anything that's a contractual term or requirement in the business. We don't want the company to be underfunded, go out of business, and then we as a franchisor have no recourse. So they'll ask you, Pamela, Mm -hmm. to sign off saying, no matter what, I'm going to pay this if the company does not. Um, It's very common, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly far more common than not. And I say to folks, you're probably going to have to sign one. Uh, mm-hmm. occasionally we can negotiate limits on them. So you might say I'm only liable for the first $50,000 or $100,000. Right. Um, but more often than not, you're going to have to sign it. And then the next question is if you have a spouse, are they going to have to sign it? <laughs> yes. Understood. Understood. Um, and for someone that's saying, well, I want to get into franchise business ownership with the vision of a particular exit strategy, uh, any advice that you would give around that? So first of all, um, re- recognize that the business has a contractual term mm-hmm. and there's a point of time when it's a good time to sell. Um, usually it's not at the very end of the term. It's when there's still some meat left on the bones, so to speak. Yep. Um, I think it's a great idea if you're getting into a business to talk to consultant or a broker, business broker, franchise broker, and find out um, what to expect when you when you want to sell it. So mm-hmm. different industries have different earnings, multiples, one way of measuring the value of a business. It might be, you know, two times earnings or three times earnings or one times earnings. And so it's good to know on the front end, what can I expect? Mm. I think sometimes people have unreasonable expectations. Um it's not that it's not a great business to get into, but you have to recognize to, to a small degree, at least you're somewhat buying a job sometimes. You know, it depends on the business. Some of them are not owner operated and you're hiring a manager, but right. you know, if you're going to make a nice income while you're operating the business, um, recognize that to some degree, uh, it's a good time to save money too. Right. And yes. not spend it all. Yes. Uh, I think also that the, the type of franchise you buy can a determining factor might be your plans to sell. Selling a more service business is harder to sell with less of a less of a value than a retail business, right? Mm-hmm. And you talked about Pam Curry LLC. Well, it's a little more difficult to sell Pam Curry without Pam Curry, right? As an example, sure, I understand. But if it's saying. retail, you know how many people know who actually owns some of the big fast food franchise actual locations, right? Mm -hmm. You don't go in and say, Oh, I'm going to go to Bob's place and buy a, buy a burger, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to go to whatever, whatever signs on the front door. So that's, more easily transferable. Well, what you're referring to is service. right. What you're referring to is a personalized service. Correct. Uh, that means you know I'm the product, right? I'm the product in the service. Right. But there are other service-based franchises that really have great resale value. Yes. Just a you know, be clear on the difference. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, no, no, I follow you. Actually, that's a a great segue. Before um, before I, Michael, if someone wanted to get in touch with you and uh, learn more about your legal services, how would they go about doing that? 
Um, well, they can find me at the law firm of Taylor English Duma, and my email address is mrosenthal at taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, English.com. And we'll also have that information listed on probusinesschannel.com, just to let you know, franchise visitor. Thank you for all the great advice. John, um, that's kind of a nice segue. We're, we're talking about uh, resales and a, a lot of things happening there. Um, I just want to real quick want to give my buyer, or I'm sorry, listeners, a little bit more of a backdrop on you. Um, John Q, as we like to refer you, <laughs> John Q, a lot easier to say, works, you work a lot with restaurants, franchisors, as well as franchisees. Uh, the crown jewel of your services really has been from complete end-to-end Outsource bookkeeping, accounting, and CFO level financial management. I know that you are wonderful when it comes to uh, really offering affordable and effective solutions uh, for business-minded uh, business owners uh, and really looking to meet the needs of your clients. And um, I can speak wholeheartedly to that. Well, thank you. Yeah. With that being said, though, uh, let's, let's talk about... Uh, business ownership benefits, tax advantages. Where would you like to start? Well, well, first of all, Mike, you did such a great job. I have so many notes on what you said. I'm hoping to get to about a third of them. <laughs> um, but, but a lot of, lot of great, valuable information. Uh, the first cliche, and I, I'm ruled by cliches, the first cliche is the only thing worse than paying a lot of money in tax is not paying any money in tax, right? Because you didn't make any money. So we don't go into business to lose money. We don't buy a franchise to lose money. Although there are certain some, some certain tax advantages to becoming a business owner, for sure. Yes, absolutely. Um, should we start off with an acronym? Okay. EBITDA. EBITDA, that's um, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So generally speaking, that is the cash flow that occurs or can be expected from a business that started before you factor in how much money you have to buy a borrow to buy it. So that's basically cash flow from operations mm-hmm. and that is a good starting point for determining what you want to do. So if you have a corporate job and you're making $150,000 a year, the question is, can you get this business to replace that income in some manner, shape, or form? Okay, so let's talk about that. Because when um, when I think of being an employee, we think of income, right? And and that's where our head goes, income minus taxes, and then we get what's sure. left over. Uh, but a business owner looks at income differently than a classic employee. Yes. How can, uh, I guess, uh, how can an owner, a business owner, take compensation in the form of expenses versus in the form of profit line of their business? The way I'd like to do that is to describe business expenses in three basic categories. Okay. You know, your ordinary and necessary ones, your rent, your employee salaries, and that sort of thing, the relatively obvious ones. And then the category that gives business owner the most benefit are expenses that everybody has, but because they happen to be self-employed, they might be able to deduct a portion, a great portion, or all of them. Mm Mm-hmm. 
your car expenses, your cell phone expenses, your personal laptop computer, maybe your home office expenses, and things like that. So mm-hmm. to be able to take those and deduct them, because you're using these items for your business, a portion of them should be deductible. Sure. So that gives you, and that increases the the net economic benefit to the owner, right? Sure. And then the, the third category might be expenses that you create because they are deductible. Putting in a self-employed pension plan or a solo 401k, or maybe you go to an annual convention that is important for your business sure. to attend, but also just happens to be in an area that, you know, would you might be able to combine some, some recreational value to that too. Mm-hmm. So there are a few examples of those. Um, there are people that might be supporting their parents, and obviously a lot of us are supporting our children. Find a way to hire them, have them do actual work inside your business, and and take advantage of the of the the family wide lower lower potential tax brackets. Obviously, they have to be doing real work, <laughs> um, and they have to be providing a value for what they're doing. Sure, um, that's why people like to use their children in their advertising because modeling rates are so much higher. Right, they don't require a great deal of skill. Mm. Uh, necessarily uh, understood Mm. so um, when we think about some of those write-offs would a franchise fee that one-time franchise fee be something that you can write off yes Uh, but that has to be over the term of of the franchise agreement so over seven ten or how many years that you have that you know your equipment obviously can be depreciated over time now, we do have some opportunities for greatly accelerated depreciation. Okay. So sometimes it's very effective if you're going to go to a multi-unit model, maybe add a second unit in December, take advantage of the write-offs of the accelerated depreciation of that one to cover the income you have from location one. Of course, then at the end of the next year, you got to open two more to cover that and Hopefully, you're building yourself a really, really serious but good problem. (laughs) Or a mini empire, right? There you go. (laughs) And um, talk to our listeners about, I guess, managing cash flow. Any advice around that? Because that's a big piece. And that's another thing that Mike said when we were talking about in the the disclosure document, you know, 90 days worth of cash of cash flow. I think a lot of people run out of money when they start a business because they have no idea how much they're going mm-hmm. to need. Mm-hmm. Um, but 90 days, if you think you can start at, let's say 50% of the revenue you expect, then 90 days in the bank is really 180 days in the bank as that 50% of your income gradually gets up to 100%. But, you know, i People come into the office all the time, you know, I need a half a million dollars for my business. And then you sit down and go, no, it's going to be closer to a million or vice versa. And say, no, you don't really need that. You need this. So the financial disclosure document helps to give people some sort of an idea. Um, Again, retail might be a, a little bit easier if it's an established business. It's got name recognition and it's got value. Mm-hmm. And I think that really hinges on the whole value proposition of a franchise. If you are a very sales-centric individual, maybe you don't necessarily need to invest in a franchise that does a lot of sales and marketing for you. 
if you're an operations guy and said, just send me the bodies and I'll take <laughs> care of them, right? Then, then, then you're looking for an operational driven thing. Let's look at it, somebody graduating from medical school or dental school or chiropractic school. They say, all right, I want to, I want to heal the sick. I want to teach, I want to help people. I need to sign, maybe sign a franchise agreement with somebody who will help me get customers and get people in the door, get patients in the door, find out. And once, once I get in, I know I can treat them and I know I can treat them well, but too often people, their marketing plan is unlocking the door. And, you know, I went to a guy, he bought a fast food franchise. I went over to see him and he was sitting in a high back chair facing the door. It was unlocked and he was staring at the door and that was his marketing plan. And he just looks at me and says, John, people know come. <laughs> um, and, and he obviously bought a franchise that was not, uh, didn't, didn't, his shortcomings were not overcome by the strength of the franchise and vice versa. Understand. Yeah. yeah. Find out what you do well. Find out what you don't do well. Find a franchise that does what you don't do well well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, wanted, I followed got that. that? Huh. <laughs> I, I wanted to add one thing. You know, John was talking about item seven and what it represented. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that people often overlook is as they're getting this business started, they still have to eat. Yes, pay they, bills. They need, right. That's right. They need to have enough money put aside to replace the income that $150,000 a year job or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they just need to remember that. Yeah. Good point. Yep. You have to pay the bills while you're getting your business up and running. Correct. So, John, um, could you talk to us a little? We were talking about, I, I call it, uh, I use my own acronym, BOB, right? Business Ownership Benefits. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, we often hear the analogy of, of buying a home, right? You, you know, you have to live somewhere. Uh, you're paying that mortgage. At least you're able to build an asset um, while you're living somewhere. How does that bridge over to a business asset? I would I would assume that there are there are some some jobs some employment contractor uh, contracts that have some sort of a a a down the road severance package. I think buying a franchise has that very strong and very well built in. So any value that you're adding to the business in which you are working goes to you ultimately. And that's the principal benefit of building a transferable or sellable business. Mm. Um, so not only are you benefiting from your direct labor, you're, direct, uh, you're, you're able to build some value in there that'll sometimes be done, right? Yes. So when you move out of your apartment, you do not get a lump sum payment, right? <laughs> right. But when you do sell your house hopefully you make some some sort of gain right the downside of that is you have to live somewhere mm-hmm. um so you have to turn around and buy something else i guess um so that, that i think that explains a lot of the benefits of ownership you know and and uh, mike talked about buying a job the question is are you creating a synergy that's going to create more not only wealth but additional income by having two or three or four or 10 or a hundred people working for you that are also going to be generating revenue. And it's just not your effort that's going to put, um, put money in your pocket, pay your bills and feed your kids. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Scalability, right. Uh, And it can come in a variety of 
ways. Scalability can come away by getting into maybe that second unit, that third unit, buying additional territory. Uh, but it also can come in ways of you know, expend, extending your customer base, right? right. <laughs> uh, extending your customer base. It also can come in ways where you're adding a business to your portfolio that possibly has a shared customer base. So scalability can come in a lot of different shapes. Right. And, and that's- well, I did very interesting. I had a client, he had a fast food restaurant for years. He paid his daughter's way through medical school, sold that business, retired, and bought a practice for her to own and operate. So yeah, to think that you're, you're the doctor that you go see in that medical practice used to be a fast food place. <laughs> but it's logical evolution, right? Mm-hmm. And what you're owning is an opportunity to be successful, whatever, the, however the walls are painted at that given time. And as your needs change and evolve and people have been known to sell smaller franchises by bigger ones or more established ones, or even the other way around. Right. If someone was considering a franchise, do you do any type of pre-consulting before the franchise agreement, or do your services come post? Well, certainly on the financial side, understanding that you can survive uh, for a period of time without a paycheck, um, what your investment is going to be, what the cost of that investment is going to be. That's something that's very important that has to be done, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can't quit your job. You're not going to be, under almost all circumstances, you're not going to be profitable from the day you unlock the door. You don't need to spend every penny you have to get to the grand opening because there'll be a startup time and nobody knows how long that may or may not be. Um, the question is, when we look at it, we say, what does this, and going back to what we we're talking about, strong marketing and strong operations, what does this franchise offer you? Mm-hmm. You know, and what does it know that you don't know or you can't easily find out? So if you were going to buy a, or you were going to start a, a business radio station, <laughs> does it make sense to buy one of these franchises? Or can you just stick your head in the door over here and say, hmm, I can copy that. But really what you're buying is what's inside the business owner's brain. Mm-hmm. And that, that intangible, and that's kind of hard to define as to what they know and what they have. You know, once you have the pizza recipe, are you in the pizza business and is that it? No, there's a lot of, there are a lot of nuances that go with every business, right? That's the question and that's the answer and that's the value of somebody saying, no, I can copy this guy or I need to buy a franchise of his because he has so much intellectual property that's buried inside his head. And it's not what he's doing today that's as important as the innovation he's going to have tomorrow and the next day and the day after that too. And hopefully you've got a guy that's not selling a commodity that's a fixed product, but one that's going to continue to evolve. And the the value of being part of the system. I don't know how to judge that. (laughs) I I think there's another value too that uh, hopefully is there and that can be brand value. Mm -hmm. Hopefully what you're buying as a franchisee is the, established value of that brand and the recognition of it, which should help you get more business, more customers, smaller or newer systems that may be less true. Sure. 
but mm-hmm. it's something to be aware of. Yeah, yeah, and, and you're sharing in the in the development of that brand, right, with an emerging concept. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, you're part of the. Yep, you are part, of, part of, that. of that, right? Right. Well, and that also it couples back to what you were talking about with the advertising fee. If you're working for a, uh, if you're buying a smaller, more emerging franchise, maybe negotiating that advertising fee can have a deduction for whatever local advertising you do. Because if there are only three locations, you don't necessarily want uh, a national advertising campaign. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be on on the number one rated TV show across the country when there's such a limited scope area of what those franchises cover. And we we didn't have time to get into different areas of negotiation, but do you have any comments around that? Well, uh, that's certainly something that you can try to negotiate. Um, I think it's really helpful. A a lot of systems start in a geographic area. Uh So, for example, they might start here in Atlanta and then grow geographically because it just makes business sense. Mm -hmm. But if you happen to be the first franchisee in California and the system that started in in Georgia, it makes sense to, to negotiate some arrangement, as John said, where they can deduct out their local advertising most franchisors are going to be reluctant to commit to spending a certain amount of dollars in your area. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can also look at what their track record has been, if they have one, mm-hmm. as they expand and, and try to see what they've done in the past. Um, so that may be something that's worth discussing with the franchisor. Sure. Um, and also many systems will uh, they'll have a size requirement that triggers the beginning of the franchise uh, marketing fee or ad fund. Right. Mm-hmm. So they have to get to 10 units or 50 units. So you get a little bit of leeway on the front end. Um, and sometimes you can negotiate that. I follow you. And I've had national franchisees or local of a national thing saying, yeah, I'm paying all this advertising fund to get these giant billboards in Yankee Stadium and Fenway Park. <laughs> that doesn't do me any good at all but it's all part of developing and evolving the brand. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, John, if someone wanted to reach out to you for your services, how would they go about doing that? Uh, The best way to reach me is in my office. I'm corporate financial uh, options, and I'm on Powers Ferry Road in Marietta. My office number is 770-395-0223. You can email me at johnq at johnqcpa.com. I have a pretty strong LinkedIn presence, so you can you can see all my witty comments in there from time to time, um, and just just yell on any street corner. Hey, John, I need you. Yeah, and again, we'll have you on ProBusinessChannel.com. We'll have your contact information listed there. Okay, fantastic. And I do just want to you know just for our listeners, I do want to just give another consideration note. I mean, we've we've had some very heavy topics today, right? Legal advice, along with uh, you know tax advantages, business ownership benefits. Uh, it's very obvious that there is an investment requirement for business ownership. And sometimes that initial debt th- is is through loans. Um, and as a business owner, admittedly so, your mind shifts. It shifts towards building an asset. It shifts towards, you know, how can I create wealth or that 
multiple revenue streams, have that stronger sense of self-control, direction, and lifestyle. So this is where the mind starts to shift when you start to look into franchise business ownership. Admittedly so, franchising is considered a minimized risk. And the reason is, is because uh, the proven methods of operation are there. You're becoming part of a system with fellow colleagues to be able to share in in the building of that system. Um, depending on the size of the system, you get brand awareness, and brand awareness creates customer awareness. So all of those things coming together is what helps make franchise a minim- minimize risk towards business ownership. Uh, don't do not. I always like to say I do not want to say it's not a lot of work. Because it is. At the same time, the work becomes very rewarding because you're doing it for business ownership benefits, um, many of which we already have talked about. Uh, Definitely a journey to build your business, uh, along with a sense of pride, um, appreciation for establishing a business, and recognizing those owner benefits, uh, building that asset, receiving those tax advantages, and working toward an income, and then some. So just uh, kind of a closing note there for our listeners to think about. With that being said, I I do want to go ahead and sign off. Again, this is Pamela Curry, host of the Franchise Business Radio Show, a platform for bringing together franchise professionals to connect, educate, and collaborate to serve the franchise community and those considering franchise ownership. To learn more about me and my services, simply go to www.franchiseintellect.com or email me at pam at franchiseintellect.com. And again, Thank you to our sponsors. Check out Franchise.City, a better way to buy a franchise, and FranServe, the world's largest franchise consulting and expansion organization. Thank you, Mike and John. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for joining Pamela Curry and her guests for the Franchise Business Radio Show, sponsored by Franchise Intellect, knowledge of the franchise community for franchise selection. More info at FranchiseIntellect.com. Also made possible in part by Franchise.City, a better way to buy a franchise. More info at Franchise.City. And FranServe, the world's largest franchise consulting and expansion organization. More info at FranServe.com. Use the social media links here to share today's show and check out more episodes at Franchise Business Radio dot com.